so this year I decided to see if I could participate in Lent. And I don't know if anyone, has anyone ever participated in Lent? Given up chocolate or alcohol or something maybe for <laughs> 40 days? Um, it's not something we tend to observe in our Christian tradition. Um, but in the last few years, I've spent pockets of time with uh, Christians from my like, other denominations. I've been really curious as to how they worship God and what does that look like for them. Um, and I've not really understood Lent in the past, you know, this idea of, you know, self-denial for 40 days, um, you know, thinking that Lent was something to be conquered, which it is not. Um, Alicia Britt Choll in her book, 40 Days of Decrease, and I've been following the book off and on during Lent. I haven't necessarily been very consistent. She says, faith in general is less about the sacrifice of stuff and more about the surrender of our souls. Lent in kind is less about well-mannered denials and more about thinning our lives in order to thicken our communion with God. Decrease is holy only when the destination is love. I think that's probably true for a lot of what we do, especially in the church, um, that it's only holy if the destination is love. Um, and that's what I hope to say, that our destination will be love. Um, so I've heard it said, uh, don't preach until you've stopped bleeding. Um, so I'm not going to share a whole lot of the last six months uh, for me, because I've definitely got a few wounds still open that I'm working through with some really good people. Um, but in many ways, it's been my own road to Emmaus. Um, you know, I'm probably still grieving the departure of many friends and the changes that have happened here in the last six to nine months. I've been wondering about the timing of this transition. Like, it seems good for Michael and Ellie leaving, and it seems good when Paul and Grace arrive. But, you know, this middle season's been a little bit messy, and I've got questions for God around some of that. Yeah, I've been wondering about how Christians on the, um, the opposite, how we can be on the opposite sides of the same coin, um, being sure that we've each heard from God, but it looks opposite to the others on the other side. And then who gets to decide who is right? You know, or is it that God's wisdom in the same situation can be different for different people? and it still be wisdom. Just like in the book of Proverbs, you've got verses that are opposite to one another right after each other. You know, what, is it, what does wisdom look like for us? You know, and I've been experiencing, you know, heartache and disappointment when leaders I've followed have either burnt out or have fallen from grace. And I've got big questions about the institution we call the church. Why does it not look more like the bride of Christ? And where have I been complicit? So lots of doubt and questions the last six months. Um, I don't share that for pity or concern, you know, it just is what it is, and I'm sure that many here have big questions at the moment. You might be on your own road to Emmaus, you might have unfulfilled promises, there might be heartache, grief, disappointment, hurt, and disorientation. Um, right now, churches all over the country, and now we're coming back to being in person, and, and it's great, um, but... I know that there are thousands who are feeling disillusioned and heartbroken um, by the decisions that churches have had to make in the last season here at Awaken as well. We've got believers who are suspicious of leadership, brothers and sisters that are skeptical about the motivations of pastors, um, many wondering how they can worship again in churches that they believe have been influenced by Satan. You know, my prayer list is full of friends, friends with empty arms, praying for babies, friends who are fighting for their marriages, friends who are in dire need of supernatural healing, friends who are fearful of an unknown future. You know, so it seems that for many, hope has been lost in this season, that it's a bit of a tireless trudge, one foot in front of the other. It's been really tough, and I know that there are some who are wondering whether or not they can cling on to faith. Uh, we're all probably in some way on our own road to Emmaus this morning. But today is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. 
Jesus was crucified on Friday. Sabbath arrived, so the disciples hunkered down, hiding in Jerusalem. Well, most of the disciples, we always say the disciples all fled, but really, actually, the women (laughs) were still there, uh, and they were still, um, yeah, they were still active. But I can't imagine how dark that Saturday was, the fear and the confusion, the grief, the trying to go over and over again everything that Jesus had said and everything Jesus had done, trying to make sense. How on earth did it end this way? Well, the Gospels are really quiet about Saturday. Easter Sunday arrives. The woman head to the tomb now that the Sabbath is over, but Jesus' body is gone. The fact that the woman are the witnesses to the resurrection is a pretty valid clue that resurrection was real. Uh, the testimony of a woman wasn't worth a whole lot in that patriarchal time. Uh, so it's not sort of evidence you try to cite to prove what had happened. And so we see this pair on their way to the road, uh, on their, heading away from Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus, uh, Cleopas and a companion. Uh, the jury seems to be out whether it was another male traveler or if it was his wife. Um, but either way, leaving that second person unnamed gives us the opportunity to put ourselves into that story. So this pair, they'd heard the reports of the tomb being empty, but they didn't stay with the community as they processed the news. Dead people don't come back to life. They had no historical frame of reference that this was even possible. But I do wonder what they made of Lazarus being raised to uh, life not too long before the Easter story. Um, and I've heard lots of messages, you know, and I'm sure you have too. You know, Friday, it's all pretty dark and grim, and Saturday is the waiting. But Sunday is coming, uh, and that's true. Sunday may have dawned with resurrection, but for these disciples, it wasn't until sundown that resurrection became real for them. They're on their way out of town, and there's a literary device at play here. Um, Through much of the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. He's making his way towards his death. Um, But here is this pair. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're they're sort of an opposite of a pilgrim's ascent. Uh, Jerusalem was the city where God's presence was. Uh, It was that place where heaven would meet earth. Um, And I read a suggestion the reason Jesus went after these two was to help herd the disciples back to Jerusalem. Um, A little bit, you know, let's bring the one back to the 99. Yeah, they'd heard the woman's testimony. Tomb was empty, but there was already this drift away from the core disciples. So now they're putting distance between themselves and Jerusalem. Um, And I don't know about you, but I do that. Uh, I pull back when things get a bit painful. Uh, sometimes uh, in avoiding heavy emotion, I'm avoiding God. To avoid doubt, I'm avoiding he who is truth. I'm on my own road to Emmaus. Uh, when Jesus joined this pair, they don't recognize him. And we see this a bit in the Gospels, Jesus being obscured from his disciples. Uh, and Luke employs some humor and some irony here. Cleopas exclaims to Jesus, must be the only one who doesn't know what's gone down in Jerusalem. But actually, Jesus is the only one who does know what has gone down in Jerusalem. So Cleopas goes on to explain, Jesus, prophet and teacher, rescuer of Israel, we had hoped. And there were historical precedents, you know, prophetic promises. It was Passover. Exodus was their backdrop. Right even to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, it's dripping with just these pictures of Exodus, of rescue. This was supposed to be their Exodus. But Jesus is dead, and his body is missing, and their hope is gone. Um, And for those of you who heard me preach last week, you'll remember 
um, what I shared about Israel, their expectations of a Messiah, their hope was in their bones. It ran generations deep. Finally, after centuries of empire, Israel would be restored. Her Messiah had come to rescue her. Um, and I can't imagine that longing that may have been passed down from your ancestors. And I actually wonder if, you know, there are colonized indigenous groups that feel that, that, that desire to be freed and rescued from, you know, oppression that they've known for generations. And Jesus takes them through the Old Testament. Um, of course, it was when it says, you know, he took them through the scriptures. It was the Old Testament. It was different to, you know, they, he didn't have a full Bible yet. Uh, and it looked different too, you know, starting with Genesis and ending with Chronicles. It was in a different order. But he takes them through it. And it wasn't that long of a journey to Emmaus. It was only about seven miles. So it was like a two-hour walk. And I wonder what that sermon sounded like. Again, here we have some wonderful irony. Cleopas and his companion are listening to all of this, having no idea who they're talking to. And we're reading it, going, we know who they're talking to, who, who's talking to them, but we don't know what he's saying. And I imagine rather than picking up verses that are pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I imagine that he painted this glorious story that's woven right through the Old Testament. You know, creation, the failed vocation of Adam and Eve through the fall. Um, Israel, God's chosen nation, who then themselves failed their vocation. The need for Jesus, a new Adam. He came to save not just Israel, but all of humanity. And the destiny of the prophets was often rejection, suffering, and death. And the disciples, it seems, have entirely missed Jesus' predictions of suffering, death, and resurrection. And of course, Jesus didn't show up like David. They were expecting a Davidic Messiah. He didn't even show up like the Maccabeans in their revolt when they uh, restored the temple back to its glory 200 years prior. As we heard last week, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was a complete reversal of the expected royal entrance. I wonder if these lost disciples needed to be shown that their rescue would not be through political power or social upheaval, but through the suffering and apparent defeat of Jesus. Joel Green in the Gospel of Luke, he says, What has happened with Jesus can be understood only in the light of scriptures, yet the scriptures themselves can be understood only in the light of what has happened to Jesus. These two are mutually informing. Before the disciples be able to recognize the risen Lord, they must grasp especially the nexus between suffering and Messiahship. They're connected. Can't understand the scriptures without Jesus. Can't understand Jesus without the scriptures. It's all together. And the story reaches its crescendo when the weary travelers invite Jesus to stay, to eat with them. To share a meal in those times was a metaphor for entering friendship. A shared table is symbolic of a shared life. But it's not Cleopas, the host who breaks the bread. It is Jesus. In classic Luke form, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always eating. He's either on his way to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's on his way leaving the meal. Um, but in this story, this road to Emmaus, as they sit and as they break the bread, there are echoes of previous meals. Echoes of Luke 9 um, there is this sort of these stories sort of back to back. We have Herod who is like confused. He's hearing stories about Jesus and he's like, but I chopped off John's head. Like, who is this? Uh, and then straight after that, Jesus feeds the 5,000. This massive, he breaks, he blesses the bread, he breaks it, he feeds all these people. And then after that, he says to the disciples, you know, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. So there is this uh, confusion, the breaking of bread and revelation, this understanding who Jesus is.
And it also reminds us of a much, much earlier story. In Genesis 3, it says, The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, he said, The tale was told over and over. It's the beginning of the woes that had come upon the human race. Death itself was traced to that moment of rebellion. The whole creation was subjected to decay, futility, and sorrow. Now Luke, echoing that story, describes the first meal of a new creation with a couple in Emmaus, probably Clopas and Mary, husband and wife, discovering the long curse had been broken. Death itself had been defeated. God's new creation, brimming with life and joy and new possibility, has burst open in the world of decay and sorrow. Jesus himself, risen from the dead, is the beginning and the sign of this new world. So this meal, this really ordinary meal, uh, I can't imagine they had much of a spread out. You know, they've been in Jerusalem probably for the last week. Uh, There's pretty ordinary hospitality that happened as they invited Jesus into their home. This meal was incredibly significant, the first of new creation. Um, and of course, we're living in that space, the now and not yet, the, the space where there are these pockets where heaven meets earth, these glimpses of, of what is to come. And they said after Jesus revealed himself, he disappeared. Typical. Um, <laughs> uh, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? I feel like this perfectly describes those heaven meet earth moments that we are too distracted to catch in the moment. I don't know about you, but there's moments in my life where I look back and I can see where God was, and I think, oh yeah, actually, I can see now he was there. These landmarks, um, they give, and those landmarks give me now hope as I am on the road to Emmaus that actually God has shown up then and then and then, and he is probably working in this right now. I just can't see it. Um, of course, I'm always hoping that Jesus will come up and give me the answers that I'm asking him, but he always seems to be on his schedule, not my schedule. So the pair on the road to Emmaus in an instant moved from discouragement and despair to hope and faith. God can meet us in that place, that place where hope feels dim. There were no grand gestures that brought about the revelation, no formulaic movements. I tend to be pretty wary these days of anything that's like, you know, five, five steps to spiritual success. Um, I don't think we need that. This was a simple meal between two hosts and a stranger, ordinary hospitality. You might feel like you don't recognize Jesus in your situation right now. Maybe the tide is out on your hope. Maybe you're in overtime. Maybe you're wondering if God's somehow forgotten you. Um, I love the Psalms, you know, two-thirds of the Psalms are lament, and you read, you read them, and, you know, David, and they're, they're saying, God, why have you forgotten me? Um, but he hasn't. He hasn't. You might be able to see God in the, working in the lives of others, but maybe not necessarily seeing it in your own situation. Where is the meaning in all of this, God? If 
But when you can't see his hand in your current situation, we can turn to the Gospels to find out evidence of who God is. And, and I think that this is what Jesus did, you know, a little bit on this journey with them. They didn't fully understand. They didn't know it was Jesus that was standing in front of them, but they were hearing about him. And, you know, when we look at the Gospels, we're reminded that, you know, hey, Jesus, he called his followers to him. He turned water to wine. He calmed the storm. He healed the sick. He refused to join the voices of those that condemned that woman that was caught in adultery. He wept for his friends, and he washed the feet of Judas. And Jesus wasn't just all of those things then. He is those things for us now. He calls us. He refuses to condemn us. He washes us our feet. He heals us, and he weeps with us. You might not be walking through your own road to Emmaus now. Obviously, not everyone's going to be in that place. Um, but I guarantee you there'll be somebody in your world close to you who is. Um, and at the moment, the reality for us in the Hutt Valley, there is a whole community at Arise who are going to be hurting this weekend with what is happening down there. There are people who will be walking their own road to Emmaus in the coming weeks and coming months as they're trying to figure out everything I thought was real, maybe. You know, the, the foundations are being rocked in this season. And you'll notice there were three elements in the story that led to the unveiling of Jesus to these disciples. The word, the breaking of bread, and community. And I'm not sure that as the church that we're any good really at sitting with people when they are hurting, when they are broken, when they are grieving, that we can sit with them with the same empathy and compassion that Jesus had. So often we want to give people the spiritual answers, but they're not the real heart answer that they need to hear. People who are hurting, they don't just need truth, they need truth embodied. Sometimes when we can't see Jesus in the frame of our crisis, it's community that helps us to remember. Can we slow down to walk with someone in pain? Can we let them ask questions that we have no answers for without trying to make up an answer for it? Can we walk for a while without saying a word? And can we listen for that right truth and embody that? The fact that Jesus will never leave you is true, we know. But having that embodied with someone sitting with you while you're in grief, that is truth. The fact that you're unconditionally loved by Jesus is true. But having that embodied by being loved when you're at your worst is truth. The fact that you belong to Jesus is non-negotiable. But having that embodied and being accepted, no questions asked, is truth. And the road to Emmaus happens again and again and again. Um, recently, I was shooting a wedding, um, and I'd been full of doubts and questions for, for a long wee while, and, and didn't really feel like I'd, you know, seen Jesus for a while, and I was feeling pretty dry. Um, but at this wedding, it wasn't the breaking of bread that revealed Jesus to me in that moment, it was the worship. There was something incredibly sacred that happened in that moment. Um, it was incredibly simple worship. There was no hype. Uh, it was just simple. And, uh, but that space was holy ground for six minutes and 42 seconds. Um, and that was a stake in the ground for me that, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Jesus is here. This will be all right. He is on this road with me. He, he is okay to take these questions, these doubts, all of that with me. I was aware again of Jesus' presence. He had never left me. But just for that six minutes and 42 seconds, I was so aware of his presence. Also made me realize how much I had missed uh, corporate <laughs> worship. 
Susan Derber says of the road to Emmaus story, this is a story about a walk that comes from grief and trauma, from profound disappointment and sorrow. It is a story that starts with the slow steps of the depressed and the cast down, but it ends with the excited running of the redeemed and the joy of finding life transforms. That's true, there is hope, because Jesus is with us. We just don't always have our eyes open to see it. So this morning we're going to move towards taking communion. Um, it can look like a very ordinary meal, not even a meal, a snack, uh, but there is mystery in it. Had Jesus on that walk, had he just told them all the things about himself from Scripture, it might have just been a bit of an intellectual head exercise. Had he just broken the bread and, you know, surprise, here I am, that might have been magic. Uh, actually, the two, the word uh, and communion together, they're intertwined. Um, my Sammy, who is supposed to be in here, I don't know where he's hiding, but he, we were having a big discussion about this the other night, and he suggested it was symbiotic, and I don't know if that was the right word, but I was like, that was a very big word for my 11-year-old. <laughs> um, I ended up, as we were like discussing the Easter story, I ended up with like my fingers in like each of the Gospels in my Bible, um, and I had to like figure out the answer to the question about uh, when it was that the woman prepared the spices, because I'm like, they kind of prepared this. How did they do that? It was, it was Sabbath. The answer is in Mark, when they prepared, the, how they got around that one. Um, <laughs> I digress. Uh, so communion, we don't give a whole lot of time to communion often in our Sunday services, um, but this morning we're going to take several minutes just to, to rest in that. And there was one other meal in Luke that has its echoes in the story of the travelers to the road to Emmaus, the Last Supper, which was only four or so days prior. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until it is meaning, its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Gordon Smith, in his book, Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal, gives comfort to those who might feel that they're lacking in faith as they come to the table. He says, and yes, there are times when we find that our faith is weak as we struggle to believe and trust, yet we still come to the table. And the important point is that the efficacy of the table is not dependent on the quality of our faith. Thanks be to God. We can come even when our faith is feeble, but we come and we come in obedience. And what we find is that in our coming, our faith is strengthened. We come leaning into the word and the spirit recognizing that we're coming along with the company of God's people. What carries the day is not the quality or the level of our faith, but the word and the spirit and the company of people who are the body of Christ. I find that just so encouraging. So this morning, as we come into a time of communion, um, perhaps it's a time where you can bring that hurt and confusion and questions to Jesus. Perhaps you could ask Jesus for that one thing that you really need right now. Perhaps you could ask Jesus, Jesus, how do you see me? Um, or how he sees the situation that you're in. And perhaps you'd just be content just to rest in his presence and just enjoy him and just thank him 
on this Resurrection Sunday. But uh, yeah, let's just, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you that even when we're waiting for resurrection, that it has happened even if we don't yet know about it. And Father, we just pray that for those who have areas where uh, it might seem a bit dry, um, that road might seem long, just pray, Jesus, that you would be present, that you would open up our eyes to see you, to know that you are there. Father, bring us into the company of others that would remind us of who you are. I just pray this morning as we come into a time of communion um, that we would be able to be still uh, and to actually to commune, to have conversation with you, Jesus, to hear, Jesus, what you have to say about us, about our lives, about who you are, that um, our attention would be fully fixed on you this morning, Jesus. Uh, We just thank you for today, this uh, Resurrection Sunday and the hope the hope that is built into today uh, because of all that you have done for us, Jesus. Amen.